Right, so Luke chapter 8, and I'm going to read from verses 43 to 56. And as you know, I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible. So it might be a little bit different from your NIV. So Lord, so Jesus is Lord over sickness and death. So when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. And just then a man named Jairus came, and he was the leader of the synagogue. And he, fell that, and he fell down at Jesus' feet and pleaded with him to come to his house. Because he had an only daughter, about 12 years old, and she was dying. And while he was going, the crowds were nearly crushing him. And a woman suffering from bleeding for 12 years, who had spent all that she had on doctors, and yet could not be healed by any, approached from behind and touched the end of his robe. And instantly her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. And when they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds are hemming in on you and, and pressing against you. And someone did touch me, Jesus said. I know that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was discovered, she came trembling and fell down before him. And in the presence of all the people, she declared the reason she had touched him. And how she was instantly healed. Daughter, he said to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And while he was still speaking, someone came from the synagogue leader's house and said, your daughter is dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Now when Jesus heard it, he answered him, don't be afraid. Only believe. And she will be saved. And after he came to the house, he let no one with him except Peter, John, James, and the child's father and mother. Everyone was crying and mourning for her. But he said, stop crying because she is not dead but asleep. And they laughed at him because they knew that she was dead. And so he took her by the hand and called out, child, get up. And her spirit returned and she got up at once. And then he gave orders that she be given something to eat. And her parents were astonished. But he instructed them not to tell anyone what had happened. It's a wonderful piece, and we are going to be opening that up now this evening. So over the last couple of Sundays, we've been witness to the amazing power and the authority of our Lord Jesus. And he has shown his commanding authority over creation. We saw that by the coming of the raging waves and the violent winds, bringing them into absolute subjection to himself at the overriding sound of his voice. Peace, be still. And it was still. And he's also revealed his sovereign kingship, his divine authority even over the demonic. And where once again at the command of his voice the demons must obey him. 6,000 plus demons exit the demoniac and enter into the pigs. They hear his voice, they cannot resist and they must obey. And that passage also showed us Jesus not only establishing and advancing his own kingdom, but he was also revealing the evil agenda of Satan. How he is holding people in bondage, tormenting them, and wants to destroy them. And so when Jesus was in the presence of the demonic, these fallen angels, they had to present themselves. They were forced to reveal their true nature and their intent. And in the process, Jesus was revealing and showing his true intent to bind the strong man. As we know, the strong man is Satan. So as to bind him and to rob him of his victims and so that he can liberate, to restore and to forgive and to adopt children into his family. But as well as to warn, to warn everybody around. Why? 
Because not only is Jesus our liberator, he is also the judge. And there is coming a day where he will judge all of mankind. And also the angels will face their final judgment. Now if we are not willing to receive the Lord Jesus and his gift of salvation, then we rightfully deserve his wrath and his righteous anger. Because he has given so much. But you see, Jesus is also gracious and he is a, a merciful king. And even though the people rejected him, remember how the Gerasians rejected him, please go, leave here. We don't want you here. Even though they ask him to leave, he still holds out that, that hand of compassion and grace and mercy. As he sends this man, this, who once was a demoniac, he sends him out as an evangelist into that area, telling them what the Lord Jesus had done for them. He is a gracious God. Now after Jesus and his disciples had set sail from the shores of the, the Gerasians, well then they returned to the other side of the lake. And Matthew says that Jesus returned to his own town. And so this is not his hometown of Nazareth, but this is the town that he had made his home base, from which he would always set out for his various uh, ministry trips. And so this is the town of Capernaum, the home of Peter, James and John, and Matthew as well. And so as Jesus arrives back at Capernaum, we see that there is this large crowd that is waiting for him. And obviously news travels very fast in regards to where Jesus is going to be. And so verse 40 tells us, Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were waiting for him. Now as you read the Gospels, you cannot help but feel this overwhelming demand that there is for Jesus. As his foot touches the shores of Capernaum, there is this swarm of people waiting for him, already there. And he doesn't even have a chance to get his breath back. And he is really back into the thick of it. And Luke tells us that this is a desperate crowd. They are pressing in on him. And the tense is emphatic, meaning that they, they were starting to crush in on each other. Pushing up against one another. That Even that, that you get the feeling that people couldn't breathe. So it's a smothering, it's a choking crowd. And that's because everybody wants their share of Jesus. And it seems like just like there's this one thing just after the other. There's this being caught up in this raging sea and storm. Then there's being this charged down by this demoniac. And now another pressing, smothering crowd. And in the midst of this frenzy of people, there's this distraught and desperate father who has a dying daughter. And there came a man named Jairus, who was ruler of the synagogue, and falling at Jesus' feet, implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years old, and she was dying. And so you can just imagine this loud crowd jostling for spots as they surround Jesus. But they're pushing through this mass of tightly jammed people, comes this desperate dad. A prominent man from the community, crying out in desperation and then falling at Jesus' feet. It's a chaotic scene. But as you look at this father, it's very, very humbling. Because what father wouldn't do anything for his daughter? For his one and only daughter. And here he is at the feet of Jesus, begging him to heal her. To save his precious little girl. And so there is no worse feeling for a dad. 
is there? To be rendered completely powerless and being unable to do anything for your child. How distressing. How heartbreaking. What hopelessness. But in this case, there is the possibility of hope. There is a glimmer of chance. But it's going to require something unthinkable from this father. And that is what makes this situation so remarkable. This father, as Luke tells us, he's not only a prominent man in the community. He is one of the rulers of the local synagogue. You see, he's part of the group of religious leaders who have labeled Jesus a false messiah. Jesus is a threat to them. He is a rebel. He is a usurper. And they've been looking for ways to discredit him, to incriminate him. You know, trying to find some kind of reason to announce his person and his ministry. Even calling him demon-possessed. But this synagogue ruler, this dad, he knows what Jesus can do. And this public event... I think he's showing who he is showing his loyalty towards. He comes and he kneels at Jesus' feet because he knows what Jesus can do. He has heard and seen what Jesus did for the centurion. Remember that back in chapter 7? How Jesus had healed his servant with just a word. Didn't even go to his home. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. And obviously he's thinking maybe, maybe Jesus will be merciful enough to heal my daughter. And we can only see a desperate father who would do anything to have his little girl saved. But Jesus can see his true desperation, his true desire, his despair, his heart, his true level of faith, whether it was much, whether it was little, or whether it was minute. Only Jesus knows the heart of man. And only Jesus knows how to work in his life and how to take his faith and cause him to fix it on Jesus. And then also to take it to the next level. And that is what Jesus is going to do. And so he goes with Jairus. But before they can actually get anywhere, Jesus intentionally delays. Because he's in control, isn't he? Intentionally delays. And as we see, it is for the benefit of Jairus' faith and as well as for this poor woman's faith. And so then in verse 42 and going into verse 44, as Jesus went, the people pressed around him and there was a woman and she came up behind and touched the fringe of his garment. And I can just imagine Jairus' relief when Jesus actually responds to his request. Probably even caught by a, a bit of surprise. Jesus, you actually come into my house? And I guess his initial reaction would have been to try and get everybody out of the way and move as fast as possible with Jesus in tow and go and save his little girl. But you see, you can't hurry the person at whose mercy you are at. And before he could even dictate the pace, Jesus stops dead in his tracks. And how much more painful can the scene get? You see, every second that passes by is a second closer to the death of his daughter. Literally. And he knows that. And so for this poor dad, his joy and his relief now turns to frustration and impatience. 
And we can imagine this look in his face. Perplexed. This can't be happening. Serious? And so Jesus delays and he asks what seems to be the most bizarre, the most unreasonable question. And Peter and his tone, he pretty much suggests this is much this is kinda of like a, an idiotic question. Really? Because the word that Peter uses, everybody is pressing in on you, that word press is the word used to crush grapes. So Peter's saying, Is everybody is touching you? As I said, they're in this crowd and everybody's pressing in on Jesus and then touching him. Jesus, you're asking, you're asking a stupid question. Everybody's touching you. Who touched me? But Jesus knows that there's somebody else in this crowd, somebody who is also very desperate, and somebody else who is in need of his divine help. And Luke tells us about her plight, her helpless and her hopeless situation. Verse 43. And there was this woman who had this discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all of her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. And so Mark adds the following details. And he says that she had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up from behind him in the crowd, to touch his garment, for she had thought, even if I just touch his garment, I'll be made well. And so first Luke tells us that this poor woman had been suffering from this disastrous hemorrhage for the last 12 years. And according to God's laws, what we read then in Leviticus 15, this, was, this would have caused her to be ceremonially unclean. Which that meant that she could not attend the synagogue worship, nor visit the temple, nor participate normally in society. Her physical, her medical condition rendered her a health risk not only to herself but to those around her. And so she was also a transmitter of uncleanliness to all who came in contact with her as well as anything that she touched. Unclean. Unclean. Also because of her physical condition if she had been married she could no longer be intimate with her husband. It would actually be very surprising if she had been married, whether her husband was still with her. Because it didn't take much for her husband to, depart, to divorce from his wife. Even if she burnt the toast, <laughs> he could abandon her. Secondly, Mark also tells us that she had suffered greatly at the hands of physicians. She had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had. It wasn't getting better, it was getting worse. And Luke himself would have been able to testify just how bad and shameful some physicians could be. And part of their treatment could have been, and probably would have been, plagued with dodgy remedies and these various concoctions that they had come up with, but as well as a whole lot of superstitious rituals. And some of those were incredibly humiliating. I was reading through a whole lot of stuff and it's just kind of like, it's bizarre what they were doing. Obviously there were some good physicians with some natural herbs and, and stuff that actually did work. But some of the stuff was really, really dodgy. And I guess there were some physicians back then, I guess we could co compare them to our modern day witch doctors. 
odd stuff. And so this is a desperate and a distraught woman. And we're not told her age. Um, and I guess because she had spent everything that she had, maybe she's a bit of a, an oldie woman, had some kind of inheritance, whatever it might be. But all that we know now is that she's been robbed of her life. Her health has ebbed away, she's frail, she's disheartened, she's cut off from society, from fellowship, from family, and it's sad. She's financially broke, she's hopeless. Not only that, she's suffering. But she also knew that maybe there was one last chance, one last glimmer of hope. And Mark tells us in his gospel, as we've said, even if I just touch his garment, I will be made well. And so she hid within that busy, that noisy and tightly packed crowd. And somehow she was pushing through past people and pushing past the disciples. And then from behind, maybe some human shield. Being unnoticed, she reached out her hand and was able just to touch the fringe of his garment. It was at that moment that Jesus felt power, dynamous, flow out of himself. And she undoubtedly felt Jesus' healing power flow into her. Immediately her discharge of blood ceased. Immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed from her disease. And so she experienced full healing. And her body was physically restored and her heart and her mind must have been also filled with so much joy and praise. How could she not? But it's also in this moment that she doesn't escape the divine attention of the Lord Jesus. He is not only the great physician, but he is also the good physician. And so he seeks her out. He seeks her out of this busy crowd, out of her hiding place, out of her shame. Verse 47, And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared, in the presence of all the people, why she had touched him, and how she had been immediately healed. So in trembling fear, tears in her eyes, she falls at Jesus' feet and she pours out her heart to him. But Jesus does this for her good, not for her shame. You see, he needs to take her imperfect faith, her superstitious faith, Probably because of all the superstitious remedies she had to do. Jesus needs to recondition her thinking. So he takes her imperfect faith, her superstitious faith, her selfish faith. And he turns it into a deeper, clearer, richer, saving faith. A faith that is fixed on him, on the Lord Jesus and his message, not his garments. Place your faith in me. She wanted her health back. But she might not necessarily wanted the healer. Jesus healed ten lepers. Only one came back. She came to Jesus because of how she perceived life. And what maybe her greatest need was. And that was to be healed physically. But Jesus shows her who her faith needs to be fixed on and what her greatest need is. In calling her out, 
He is calling her to himself. You see it? Come to me. He wants her to see that she needs to have a first-hand personalized relationship with him. There can be no anonymity. I have to practice that word. Anonymity. We cannot hide. Why? Because that is what salvation is all about. We are known by Christ. He knows us and we know Him. Go read Galatians chapter 4 and verse 9. But also, the Gospels. Isn't it Jesus who says, The sheep hear my voice. My sheep know me. They hear me and they follow me. They listen to my voice. And so Jesus, in his grace and his mercy, is also showing everyone around that she has been healed. She is no longer unclean, to be ostracized, to be stigmatized, someone to be loathed. She is now clean. She is healed and restored and needs to be welcomed back into family, back into fellowship, back into community. And I believe most importantly, Jesus is telling her that her greatest need has been taken care of. Who knows what else Jesus had been speaking to her. But he is obviously showing her that her sin has been dealt with. The thing that truly made her unclean and out of fellowship with God has been dealt with. Because he tells in verse 48, Daughter, your faith has made you well going peace. He calls her daughter. It's a word that is used to imply affection and kindness for family. He also says, go in peace. How could Jesus tell her to go in peace if her sin had not been forgiven? How could she ever be at peace with God if her sin had not been dealt with? So Jesus, in in his grace, has dealt with her. Even though her faith is small. He has saved her. And this is how gracious and loving and how beautiful our Savior is. This poor woman is a picture of us all, is it not? That at one stage we were all sick and lost in our sin. And we squandered all of our wealth and our earthly treasures on things that do not satisfy. And things that do not last nor help nor give, give fullness of life. But Jesus has come. And he has called us out of our ignorance and our, and our selfish faith. And made himself known to us. He has called us by name. And we are known by him. Our final point. A divine deliverer. And so Jesus' focus has been on this woman for this time being. And for, for important reasons. But now his attention is going to come back to Jairus. And I guess in fact he's never taken his attention off Jairus, has he? <laughs> because this delay has been intentional. Jesus wants to teach Jairus something greater about himself. He wants to show Jairus who he is and what he's really capable of doing. And as I said, to take him to a far, far deeper level. Of faith. Now, Jairus, as we can imagine, he must be chomping. He must be chomping at the bit. Hey? 
He wants to get going, get back to his little girl. But as Jesus is still speaking, comforting this healing woman, or this healed woman, obviously now this messenger arrives with the worst possible news that his little girl is now dead. How devastating. How unfortunate. How frustrating on Jairus' part. How unavoidable his thoughts must have gone through his mind. Jesus could have avoided this. Could have sorted this lady out later. How angry, maybe. How hopeless. And how even more soul-crushing now that moment must have been. To have been given a glimmer of hope and then to have it taken away. So while Jesus was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. You see the crowd around. Let's go. And he stands there overwhelmed by the message. But Jesus hears. And then Jesus says something that is either the most hopeful thing a grieving father could ever hear or the cruelest the most sadistic promise that could ever be made to somebody. But Jesus on hearing this answered him, do not fear, only believe and she will be well. We mustn't miss out what Jesus is doing here. Jairus came to Jesus believing that Jesus could heal his sickly dying daughter. But would he believe in Jesus? That Jesus could raise his daughter from the dead? And from Jairus' response, it sure looks like it. It looks like it. Because they continued on to his house. And that's the beauty of having Matthew's gospel as well. And here the account includes Jairus' verbal response to Jesus. My, bo- my daughter has just died. But come. And lay your hand on her. And she will live. And Jairus is obviously growing in his trust towards Jesus. He has heard and he has seen the miracles. And right now in his very presence he has seen Jesus heal this woman. And so Jairus has the belief that Jesus can resurrect his daughter from the dead. And that is quite profound. From the synagogue ruler. So carrying on, when Jesus arrives at the house, he... Only allows Peter, James, and John and the parents to go with him. Maybe into that section of the house. And he pretty much kicks everybody else out. Especially those paid professional mourners. The ones who mocked him when he told them that the little girl was not dead, but only sleeping. Once again, to Mark. It says they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion. People weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered in, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and they went in where the child was. And I'm sure those mourners must have hung around just to see the outcome. Eh? To prove their point. So have another opportunity to mock Jesus. 
Because you see, they were professional mourners. And they knew what they were talking about. But Jesus also knows what he is talking about. I'd rather listen to him than to them. Jesus said that she is not dead, but only sleeping. And so the question is, was she dead? And the answer is, yes. She was as dead as a doornail. As dead as could be. Her spirit had departed, and all that remained was her earthly vessel. A vessel that had been plagued with illness and suffering. And there she was, in her little bed. Her body cold, mouth open, eyes dilated, still and lifeless. Kath and I once witnessed a very, very sad thing on Yuvonga Beach one day. We saw lifeguards and family members walking hand in hand up and down those murky waters of the, the Yuvonga history, trying to find their little boy. Shaman, they did find him. Lifeless. Dead. Lungs full of water. No sign of life. And obviously they had their desperate attempts to try and resuscitate him for quite a while. But he was gone. Such a tragic, tragic day. What a loss. I just remember they standing, praying, Lord, please have mercy. But he chose not to give the little boy back his life again. When Jesus says that the little girl is only sleeping, yes, he is referring to her death. She is dead. But what he is also referring to is the fact that death is only temporary. In fact, death is not the end. The moment we breathe our last, in an instant we go straight into the presence of God where we will face all of eternity. Remember Jesus refers to Lazarus as having fallen asleep before he raised him from the dead. And he had been rotting for four days. He's only sleeping, <laughs> but he's rotting. And Paul says in his letter to the Thessalonians, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, but those who are asleep... Brothers and sisters in Christ who have died already, those who are asleep, don't be unawares that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring them, bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive and who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. You see, real death is separation from God. Coming under His full judgment. And you don't want that. You don't want that. When a believer dies, he goes straight into the presence of God. As Jesus said to the criminal on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. You see, our spirit goes into the next world, if we can say that. Not purgatory. <laughs> we go to be with our God. We go to be with Him. In his presence. 
And there we will wait with him for our new glorious bodies. And so when Jesus says the little girl is asleep, he also is alluding to his power, isn't he? He can raise someone from the dead just as easy it is for you and I to raise somebody from sleep. So in which I wake up my girls in the morning. Wake up, Tom. There's nothing that can hold him back. But you see, for Jesus to have this right, to have this joy, to have this authority, to be able to resurrect our bodies and to give us everlasting life, he will have to lay down his life. In John 15, verse 12, this is a command, my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends. I will lay down my life for you. And also, when, remember when Jesus speaks to Mary? Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe it? Is Jesus really our resurrection hope? Is Jesus Jairus' resurrection hope? Can Jesus restore life? Can he raise the dead? You see, it is one thing to say it. But it is a completely other thing than to have to do it. And so while the mourners stand outside mocking, Jesus taking her by the hand and he called saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned and she got up at once and he directed that something should be given to her to eat. And Jesus taking her by the hand called her saying, Child, arise. And immediately her spirit returned to her, her spirit. Not another. Not some other individual. Her spirit. And her lungs filled with air, her body warmed, her eyelids fluttered, her eyes are open and they begin to focus. And who does she see? This guy standing over with the biggest smile that she's ever seen. And eyes filled with joy. What a sight to behold. And you will I will see him one day face to face. And he'll mention you by name. Welcome home. Good and faithful servant. She's given something to eat because this is not an illusion. She's not a zombie. She's not a ghost. She's not some soulless necro child. She's back to normal. She's daddy's little girl. Hey. And in this passage, we have resurrection joy, don't we? We have family reunion joy. We have divine joy. Because Jesus is the divine healer. He's the divine deliverer. Jesus is the good physician. And obviously here, Jesus is foreshadowing our future resurrection. Where his family will experience the newness of life and joy Everlasting. But why tell nobody? Why tell no one? You see, without a doubt, the word is going to get out. And it did get out. Especially since all the, those mocking mourners there, they were waiting for the outcome. But Jesus doesn't want people to see him as their political revolutionary messiah. That's not what he's about. You see, he hasn't come to liberate people from bad governments. Has he? 
He's come to liberate people from the strong man. That's what he's come to do. See, the miracles are not the central part of his ministry. His teaching is. He is the central part of it all. Not his garments. Him. And so Jesus is teaching us about himself. That he is Lord over sickness and death. And yes, if you've got an ailment and you pray out to the Lord, he can heal you. If he chooses to. If he chooses not to, it does not mean that he loves you any less or that you don't have enough faith. He will give you the faith to endure what he has allowed to come your way. He will make you equal to the task because he is a gracious God. So he is Lord over sickness and death. And that he is the resurrection and the life. And he is showing us what true faith entails. You see, true faith is fixed on him, on his person, and on his saving work. We put all of our faith and trust in him. You see, true faith is also humble, isn't it? Because where should we find ourselves? Only but at the feet of our Lord Jesus. And it is that we f- at his feet that we go to him on a daily basis and we seek his mercy. And we humble ourselves at his purposes and plans for us. And we commit ourselves into his gracious care. True faith rests in knowing that Jesus will make the best decisions possible for us. The one that will benefit us most, most purify us, must make us like himself and the things that will glorify him. True faith understands that we cannot hurry the purposes of our gracious God. That we need to be patient and that we need to be perseverant in prayer. Totally dependent in him. The beautiful passage teaches us a lot about our Lord Jesus. A gracious and a loving, compassionate God who will one day resurrect all of us. Welcome home, good and faithful servant. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the beauty of your word. Thank you for its encouragement. Thank you for the fact that you know who we are and what we are going through. Thank you that you will take our little faith and that you can cause it to grow where we in faithfulness, can do great things for you. We want to glorify your name, Lord Jesus. So we pray that you would take us and mold us and make us into the men and women that you want us to be. Glorify your name. Amen.